Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the third episode of Season 9 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. First of all, thanks for bearing with me last week. Um, I coached my daughter's youth soccer team, and our season is just starting to get going in earnest now, so my schedule's been a little bit frazzled. Um, I should be pretty good from now on, uh, so I'm really looking forward to digging into the songs from Into the Great Wide Open. So today's episode looks at the second track from Into the Great Wide Open, the upbeat, up-tempo King's Highway. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I don't play the song or clips from the song in the episode itself in order to avoid things like copyright issues or getting on the wrong side of the petty estate, which I don't want to do. Um, if you want to give the song a listen before we dig into it, there's a link in the episode notes. When author Paul Zolo describes King's Highway as an optimistic song in conversations with Tom Petty, Tom replies, that one we've performed quite a bit. I like that one too. Indeed, the song has been played 112 times in concert, including on 2010's Mojo Tour, four times during the 97 Fillmore run and sporadically on other tours throughout the band's career. On the Into the Great Wide Open tour in 1991-92, the song was the main set opener and there's a bootleg version of the band playing the song for only the second time ever live. Uh, in Cincinnati on the 9th of September, 1991. And I think that because this version has never been officially released, I can add a little snippet of it here so you can get a sense of how it sounded live in its early days. Learning to Fly is a song that the band would change the live arrangement of. And when Paul Zolo mentions the acoustic version on the playback box set, Tom responds that it'll work just about any way you want to play it. He also goes on to say, it was a tricky one to record. We went through a few changes trying to get the track to sound the way we wanted. Like any pettyhead, I'd love to hear what other versions of this track, you know, what they might sound like, if there are any outtakes or alternate takes laying around, you know, on tape somewhere. Be amazing to hear them. Though Jeff Lynne is so precise and particular about final mixes, I'm guessing we likely won't be hearing any of those in the immediate future. There's no prolonged intro to this one. The whole band comes in cooking from the first beat of the first bar, and at three minutes and eight seconds, it's the shortest song on the album, by one second. So it's no surprise that it wastes no time heading into the first verse. We do get four bars of intro with that main lick, which is just G major followed by D with the suspended fourth and natural fourth alternating. It's really a simple little lick, but again, so hummable and so memorable. On the second and fourth bars, when you get that drop to the suspended D pattern, you also hear Stan Lynch thudding his floor toms in time with that guitar. This really punches the back half of that guitar phrase and adds some meat to it. Uh, The drums again sound more like Full Moon Fever than they do Damn the Torpedoes, but it still sounds like Stan Lynch rather than Phil Jones, as Stan is adding in that little extra sauce with those tom hits. 
In the live versions, Ben Montench would double that guitar lead on piano and make that part even thicker and livelier sounding. After that very short intro, we drop into the verse progression, which picks up the pattern from the intro. The main jangling guitar lead is dropped out and we just have a simple, muted, chugging rhythm guitar along with that lead guitar tone just picking out that single D note. Or maybe it's playing a, a first and fifth, I can't quite make that out. Um, each verse is two sets of four bars, which I'll call the front half and the back half of the verse. So the first four bars, or the front half, is that alternating G, D pattern. And then we switch to the back half, where Tom sings and Take You Far Away, to a C slash C sus4, or maybe it's a, a C over D pattern. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the chord would be there, so I'd have to ask a, a guitarist friend maybe sometime. Or actually, if any of you know, when you're a, you're a guitarist or you're musicians or you, you played this song before, tell me, what, uh, tell me what chord that is. Maybe I'll ask the guys from uh, Petty Theft. Another neat thing, too, is that Tom sings mainly on the second and fourth bars of each set of four, rather than straight through. Um, so that G major and C major act as a lead into Tom singing off the root chord, which is a cool little thing I'm not even sure I'd sort of consciously picked up on before. In that back half of the verse, in the, that C major, C sus pattern, we get that bright lead guitar tone coming back in. And I'll go out on a limb and guess that that's Mike playing a Rickenbacker to get that sound. Um, as well as some, we get some vocal oohs, and I'd be willing to bet those are provided by Howie Epstein and Jeff Lynne, because they're very sort of soprano range. There's also some acoustic guitar in here, just accenting the change back to G major at the end of the fourth bar. So as always with Jeff Lynne, there's plenty of guitar on this record. And thankfully, by the time the Heartbreakers would take this song out on tour, Scott Thurston had already been added as a touring third guitarist, so some of these parts could be fleshed out live. In fact, in most live versions I've seen online, it's Howie Epstein playing the acoustic guitar and Scott Thurston taking over on bass, which makes me wonder if Jeff Lynne actually played bass on this track. He is credited as playing bass on the album, but the individual songs aren't broken out. But, but Howie and Jeff are, you know, the really tight pocket players when it comes to bass, so it's hard to tell whether it's one or the other because their styles are really quite similar. The second verse follows the first in terms of progression, but that bright jangly guitar is kept in, playing some open ringing chords to flesh out the sound a little. And as with the first verse, we also get those double snare hits from Stan in the second and fourth bars of the back half, and the crash cymbal coming in off the first beat of each of those bars. Listen for a cool bit of production here too. Stan hits that crash four times on each first beat of the bar, but the sound gets increasingly quieter. So either Stan is hitting the cymbal with decreasing velocity each time, or that's been done deliberately in the mix. Either way, it's an interesting decision, and one I've missed every single time I've listened to this song. It's also a massive music nerd thing that no one else likely cares very much about, so I'm sorry to have brought it up. Nah, I'm just kidding. Noticing little things like that just makes me appreciate, um, you know, especially the production of some of these songs even more. At the end of the back half of this second verse, we get a trademark Heartbreakers extra bar to build us into the chorus. So the back half here is five bars instead of four. And this is where Ben Montanchi's organ finally comes into the mix, and boy, is it simple. All he does is hold a G note, or probably actually two G notes, an octave apart, I think, all through the chord progression in the chorus. And the chords here are C, D, G, C, D, G in the front half of the chorus, and then E minor, D, C, D, G in the back half. So the back half here is actually only two bars. But with Ben Mont holding that G note above that progression, over the C, it's the fifth, over the D, it's a suspended fourth, and over the G, it's the root note. Over the E minor, it becomes the minor third. So this is a trick that musicians use all the time to provide movement that comes from the interplay between a single-held note and the chords that are happening underneath it. The Beatles use that little trick all the time in their harmonies. If you think about Love, Love Me Do, for example, the harmony vocal is essentially one note while the lead vocal moves over top of it. So you get this effect of a single note taking on different roles within each chord. In this chorus, we also get more percussion with what sounds like, well, I'm pretty sure it is a tambourine, 
playing a one, two, three double time pattern. So one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So there's a break in between. Um, as well as that acoustic guitar push at the end of each second bar, that that big sort of chiming open uh, trill on the on the acoustic guitar. The song reverts then back into the intro pattern, but with that keyboard slash organ sound and the double time tambourine filling out the palette a little. We head into the next two verse sections with that lead guitar tone playing those open chords and mixed higher now, as well as a low organ tone that's, again, mixed quite low, but it's still just sitting there adding a little bit of, uh, a little bit of texture to that part. So the song's building up now. In the back half of the verse sections here, after that double snare hit, Stan adds in a pretty tasty long tom fill. So again, it's a, a stylistic difference between Stan and other players who likely wouldn't add that in. It's certainly not, you know, it, we never saw that on Full Moon Fever. The drumming on Full Moon Fever was really, really straight and really, really sort of it, not busy at all. Very, very simple. So Stan's adding a little bit of character, a little bit of personality into that. And the toms aren't mixed with a ton of reverb and they're kept fairly low in the mix so that even though it's a fairly long fill each time, it's not distracting and it doesn't muddy the song in any way. And there's one more little change that we get heading into the second chorus. In the fourth and fifth bars leading into it, Ben Mont plays a synth part that mimics that main two-note guitar lead. That do 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 That bit, he's playing that on keyboard, right? So again, a very subtle, very small change just to keep the song moving and keep it interesting. I love too how rather than singing Oh, I'll Await the Day on the first line of this chorus, Tom instead sings Lover, I'll Await the Day. There's something about how that extra syllable just changes the way the chorus comes in in a very satisfying way. It changes the way that verse flows into the chorus, where in the first iteration, it was almost a sort of a harder or full stop, where this one, it just very much more just sort of leads directly into it. This chorus sees the acoustic guitar brought forward a little more and also a fantastic full harmony on the line, and we'll ride down the King's Highway, which is definitely three voices, Tom, Howie, and Jeff Lynne, I would guess, and I'm pretty sure they're multi-tracked. I'd, if I had to guess, I'd say that each vocal part is double-tracked, so we've got six voices instead of three to give it that big choral effect. Coming out of this chorus, we hear that four-bar intro progression, but without the lead guitar, and then we head into the instrumental break, which follows the verse chord progression. This is such an understated masterclass of playing to me. The solo starts really with just, it's almost like a rhythm guitar playing the, the chord progression in double time over the front half with the tambourine, the keyboards dropped out. And so it sounds so, it sounds, you know, birdsy. And again, I'd be willing to bet that it's Mike playing that Rickenbacker, doubled by a second guitar to really fill out the sound. In the back half of this section, we get arguably the most simple solo that Mike Campbell ever plays on a Heartbreakers record. It's four ascending slide guitar notes with just a little tremolo to make them sing. And if ever there were an argument needed for Mike Campbell being one of rock and roll's truly great soloists, or writers of guitar parts, if you like, um, you might not initially think of this song as an example, but I think it's so perfectly understated and joyfully triumphant that you simply couldn't imagine anything else being played there once you've heard it. You know, you couldn't shred like um, running down a dream. It just wouldn't fit. It would be jarring. It's just perfect. Those four notes that just keep building up and up and up and up. Tom says of that solo, it's really stirring with a lot of emotion in it. And when Paul Zolo comments that there aren't many songs you can point to in which his solos aren't stirring, his playing is phenomenal. Tom laughs and responds, yeah, that's probably true. You can really just raise the quality of something so fast. And those solos are really stirring. It's almost like another voice. And that's the kicker with this solo and so many of Mike's guitar parts. Yes, they're solos, but you can hum them. And they always fit melodically within the song. Not every guitar player can get that part of playing right. And we said it a ton already, but it bears repeating. Mike Campbell is in that very top bracket of guitarists who listen very carefully to the song and play for it, not over it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, folks, time for some petty trivia. Your question from the Learning to Fly episode was this. Learning to Fly is the second song in the Heartbreakers catalogue to feature Mike Campbell on backing vocals. But what was the first? Was it A, Listen to Her Heart, B, Louisiana Rain, C, It Ain't Nothing to Me, or D, All Mixed Up? Well, on You're Gonna Get It, everyone but Mike is credited with providing backing vocals, so that rules out Listen to Her Heart. On Damn the Torpedoes, the list of backing vocalists is whittled down to just Tom, Stan, and Benmont, so it isn't Louisiana Rain either. And on Let Me Up I've Had Enough, we're down to two vocalists, just Tom and Howie Epstein. So despite Mike co-writing the song, that also rules out All Mixed Up, which means the answer is... It ain't nothing to me. I'm pretty sure that Southern Accents is the only Heartbreakers record which credits every member of the band as providing backing vocals. And when you hear Mike sing with the Dirty Knobs, you do sort of see why Tom didn't need him to sing on Heartbreakers records. Not because he can't sing, but because his voice is very similar to Tom's. Howie, Stan, and Scott Thurston provide so much more width to those harmonies because their voices are very, very different to Tom's. It's the same with the Birds or the Beatles or Queen. The vocal harmonies in those bands are so distinctive and striking because of the balance of different tones and delivery styles of the singers. The same with the Heartbreakers. Your question for this week is this. When the Heartbreakers played King's Highway on Saturday Night Live on October 12, 1991, who was the host? Was it A, Kirstie Alley? B, Christian Slater, C, Kiefer Sutherland, or D, Sharon Stone. Okay, back to the song. Coming out of the solo, we get a nice tom fill from Stan to provide that transition, and we head back into the chorus. The keyboards come back in along with those double-time tambourines and those theatrical acoustic guitar flourishes. The chorus repeats twice, before that gorgeous slide guitar comes back in and plays a second, even more transcendent, ascending four-note lick, leading into a big push into the finale, with the drums switch from straight time to match the that guitar lick, we're matching that on the drums now. Uh, the song ends on a big cymbal swell from Stan and the natural decay of the instruments before a fun little drum fill and cymbal hit. You don't hear a big rock ending on our studio tape very often, but again, it's so utterly perfect for this song. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the lyrics. The killer line in this one for me is held back until that fourth verse. I don't want to end up in a room all alone. Don't want to end up someone that I don't even know. Again, such an incredibly powerful line and one of those universal truths that we, we never want to lose our own sense of identity. And though this is another song I'd call a, a little song, quote unquote, thanks again to Ivan Anderson for that brilliant turn of phrase, that one line adds a depth and punch to it that I think takes it into a slightly different place than it's been to this point. And again, in the very first line, Tom's very specific way of selecting words comes into play. When the time gets right, not when the time is right, which would read far better on paper, but lacks the punch that that hard G syllable gives you when the words are sung. Under a big old sky, out in a field of green, there's got to be something left for us to believe. So thematically, that fits the title of the album perfectly. Into the great wide open, under them skies of blue, and under a big old sky, out in a field of green, are expressing the same sort of thing. There's something else out there. There's something better that we can find, but we have to move on. We have to take a chance. The chorus then really cements this idea. I await the day, good fortune comes our way, and we'll ride down the King's Highway. And I think that the King's Highway here isn't at all a reference to the road that runs through Brooklyn in New York. If I had to guess, that was just one of Tom's little flashes of genius. I'll bet that he had, and we'll ride down the something highway and toyed with different words to slot in there. And a lesser writer could have gone with wide highway or long highway or cold highway or some type of adjective but using king's highway 
reinforces that idea of better or more or grander. It's a great little bit of writing. I also love the line, no, you can't hide out in a six-gun town. And again, I wonder what sort of sequence the songs were written in because this lyric, it almost ties together two gunslingers and into the great wide open in some ways. I know it's sort of, it doesn't mean the same thing and it's, it's more metaphorical, but I did look up whether there was a place called Six Gun Town because in the Wild West, it felt like it might be something that exists. Lo and behold, there was a place in Kentucky called Six Gun City, which was a sort of amusement slash theme park, I think, very close to Tombstone Junction in McCreary County. Um, but it's not, I think it's, it's defunct now and all the buildings are still there apparently and in pretty good condition, but it's like a ghost town. The obvious metaphor being though with that line that you can't disappear in a small town because everybody knows your business. To me, it's one of those Tom lyrics that sounds like he wrote it quickly and had a clear vision for it in his mind early on with maybe just a few small edits here and there. Maybe that sort of King's Highway and finding the right word to put in there would have been one of them. Tom delivers the lines in his natural mid-range voice and again shows his vocal dexterity on the word day of I await the day. Sounds easy to sing, but it takes good vocal control and attention to detail to get that just right, which is something I've always said that Tom is massively underappreciated for. I think I may have said on the Learning to Fly episode that you can almost think of Into the Great Wide Open as a continuation of where Tom was at on Full Moon Fever. Obviously, it's the same producer and roughly the same aesthetic production-wise, but I think that King's Highway is the song on this record that would most easily have suited the last. It's simple, it's short, and it's packed with guitars and small, subtle slights of hand that you don't always notice on first, second, or even third listening. King's Highway was released as a single in the UK and Canada, uh, failing to chart in the former and reaching 41 on the latter, as well as hitting number four in the US rock chart, presumably from gaining radio play, despite only being released as a promo single in America. Curiously, it was never released in vinyl format, only as a CD single and cassette single. Man, I still shake my head thinking about buying cassette singles. Why did we bother? What an awful lot of work for two or three tracks. <laughs> Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. Um, I honestly didn't think this episode was going to be very long because superficially, there doesn't sound like there's a ton going on in this one. How wrong can one man be? Um, King's Highway is just one of those perfect little pop songs that Tom could write in his sleep seemingly, and that was elevated by an excellent arrangement and perfect production. Again, it's a song I love. I can't really put it at the very top table with the likes of Refugee or The Waiting or you know that kind of caliber song. But again, it's pretty high up on that second tier of tracks that a, a non-pettyhead would listen to and really enjoy. So after really debating this one, as much or more than I think I've had to do for anything for quite a while, I'm going to give King's Highway an 8 out of 10. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. Tons of podcasts there that you might enjoy. Uh, you can also check out my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my best friend, Randy Woods, who performs all the music you hear in this podcast, uh, and the Ultimate Catalog Clash that I co-host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. We're just wrapping up season one of that show. We've been doing our Phil Collins era Genesis, so go check that one out. It's a lot of fun. Um, don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project, and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and again, please leave a review or a rating if you haven't done so already, including on Spotify. Um, keep talking to me on social media. Uh, and just as a weekly reminder that the podcast, The Tom Petty Project, is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. 
If you're looking for Tom's music, please visit all the official streaming platforms or go to your local independent record seller and grab some physical media to love and cherish. If you're looking for official merchandise, please go to tompetty.com. And if you're looking for merchandise for this show, please go to tompettyproject.com. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. If you're not already a member, they're fantastic fan communities and I like hanging out in them. So you might, might run across me even. Uh, until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week with the title track from Into the Great Wide Open. Bye-bye. <laughs>